Now, welcome back to Veritas. I'm Mel Hasselrick, and my special guest today is Dr. Michael Sala, coming after four years. But this new book, again, The Rise of the Red Dragon, Origins and Threat of China's Secret Space Program. Let me ask you, let me go back to the United States for a moment. I think of ONI, the Office of Naval Intelligence, and the CIA. Do you think that there's an adversarial relationship between these two entities, and perhaps they fight each other, not only with budget, but with technology? There is definitely an adversarial relationship between the CIA and uh, the Department of the Navy, um, and more recently, the Department of the Air Force. I mean, the CIA, uh, I mean, its history has been one of uh, covert operations, uh, but what gives the USA, uh, what gives the CIA enormous power and something that the military kind of resents is the fact that the CIA has the, uh, has the ability to be able to raise um, large amounts of money, uh, through the congressional appropriations process without regard to law. In, in other words, they can, they can funnel money. They can, they can acquire or funnel money through any government agency, um, and it's all lawful. And the CIA has been very good at developing a black budget, uh, actually two black budgets. I mean, the, there's the official black budget that the CIA um, is required under law to uh, develop to fund the intelligence community, but there's an unofficial black budget that the CIA creates through illicit activities like the drug trade, uh, pump and dump economics on Wall Street, insider trading, uh, kind of like all these uh, scam operations throughout the world that the estimates of the CIA's black budget annually goes as high as a trillion dollars or even more. And so, you know, that brings up uh, Donald Rumsfeld's statement on September 10. 2001 about the missing, what was it, $2.3 trillion, that that was the money that the CIA was funneling through the Pentagon to its pet projects. And departments like the Navy resent this because if the CIA has it holds the money bag, I mean, it has enormous power into what projects it funds and also, it can fund a lot of projects without the, the Navy knowing about it or without the uh, other military branches knowing about it. And, and because the Navy um, is the, I mean, the, the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Army are the oldest military services, but the, the Army doesn't have much of a space program, whereas the Navy does. So the Navy knows exactly what is going on in space, how the CIA has been using that money uh, to, to fund covert space programs um, and how it's been using that with uh, entities like the NRO for its own agenda. And, and so, yeah, there, there is a conflict between the, the Department of the Navy and the CIA. How can you really miss a dollar, let alone $2.3 trillion? I remember years ago, I woke up in the morning and I, you know, check on my bank balance. And guess what? A mistake, $479 million in my account. 
And I called the bank and I said, can you please confirm verbally how much money I have in the bank account? And they said, yes, sir, you have $479 million. And I said, thank you very much. And I was, I sat down for a moment and I thought about it. It's a good time to go and uh, get a house in Timbuktu. But no, I called the bank and I said, this is not mine. What are you going to do about it? So there's tracking, especially in the government. $2.3 trillion. How can you really lose that unless this was just done exactly at the precise time the day before 9-11? Because they knew people would not give a rat's behind the next day. Right. Yes, this is uh, what the CIA has been doing very successfully uh, for decades now. And, and they were set up originally to do precisely this, to raise large amounts of money to fund the uh, covert programs that were required uh, to study and reverse engineer the captured extraterrestrial technologies. Uh, this takes us back to the creation of the MJ-12 group back in 1947 and, and the whole creation of this uh, kind of like second Manhattan project, really, if you like it, which was the, the reverse engineering of advanced alien technologies. And all of that had to be done off the books. You, you couldn't use congressional money for that. Uh, because that money would be tracked and then congressmen would be coming in and saying, Hey, how are you spending our money? And, and that's not what you want to do if you're working on these most highly classified projects, uh, in, known in the national security system. You, you don't want prying congressmen getting involved. So you needed to raise the money off the books. So the CIA was given this unique statutory authority to be able to raise and spend money without regard to provisions of law. And, and so the CIA was set up to fund this black project. And initially it, were, it, was do, it was doing exactly what it was supposed to do, which was to fund these military programs uh, that were requiring the construction of deep underground military bases and setting up facilities for reverse engineering uh, these craft and funding scientists and so forth. So all of that was began well enough. But by the 19, by the late 1950s, uh, the Majestic 12 group had decided to basically become a rogue operation and, and it worked with the CIA to allocate those funds to whatever pet projects it wanted and deny knowledge of those projects to the Navy, to the Army, to the Air Force. And that's what caused big problems because in 1958, uh, President Eisenhower, he got so fed up that he threatened to invade Area 51 with the U.S. First Army stationed in Colorado. So that's how bad it became. And and, and certainly uh, the CIA's power uh, over covert projects, especially reverse engineering of alien technologies, comes directly from its control of the black budget. Do you think Area 51 is a distraction and perhaps the development of it, of exotic weaponry and, and technology is being done somewhere else? What do you think is really there in Area 51? Area 51 was built in the mid-1950s and the flying saucer craft that had been captured either in Nazi Germany or that had been retrieved from Roswell and other places, they all were being studied at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. 
in in Ohio. Now, with the construction of Area 51 in in the mid 50s, uh, then a lot of those technologies were moved over to the S4 facility at Area 51 for further study and for storage. And but the real reverse engineering has been going on in these uh, corporate in these joint corporate military facilities like Plant 42 in Palmdale, California, where the U.S. Air Force has a, a facility uh, where you actually have the major aerospace companies like uh, Lockheed Martin, which has Skunk Works located there at Plant 42, Northrop Grumman doing the same thing, and other major corporations like Boeing and, and uh, General Dynamics also having similar kind of uh, ventures happening there at, at Plant 42. So that's where the corporations build uh, flying sources, flying triangles, and even flying rectangles for its different customers. Um, and some of those customers are not necessarily uh, the U.S. military. But Area 51 is where they store uh, those older technologies, you know, the, the retrieved ET craft and the Nazi craft. And, and that Area 51 is where they do the do- dog and pony show for anyone that they feel they, they want to give access to these technologies. Uh, but the real action is happening at, uh, places like Palmdale where the Air Force is uh, at Plan 42 is, is having its uh, anti-gravity craft being constructed, and the Navy ha- is been doing the same at China Lake and in the Dugway Proving Grounds in Utah, where, again, you have uh, major corporations uh, with uh, cooperating with Navy scientists in building the Navy secret space program out there in, the, uh, in Utah. I remember in the 90s when I lived in California, I had clients all over the place, and some of my clients were defense, uh, even construction. We had some of these companies that are allegedly the ones that are that were building the Denver airport and some military facilities underground. Uh, Bechtel, Bechtel. In addition, Northrop, uh, Northrop uh, Grumman, uh, Lockheed Martin, and the rest of them. And there's this information coming out stating that there's an approach by certain elements of a certain political party in the United States that would like to secede the state of California and allied it to China. Have you heard that? Well, I haven't heard of any uh, party wanting to ally with, you know, have, have a state secede and ally, ally with China. I mean, that, that to me is like very suspicious. Like what's the, what's the agenda? But, but certainly I, I know that, um, that there's been this kind of growth in, Popular movements in places like California, uh, right. where California, you know, they want to secede. That's what I meant, California. Um, imagine what it would be if they wanted to secede, and all of a sudden they said, "We're going to have a, a, uh, you know, an agreement with China." Basically, you're going to be under the tutelage of China. But going back to Gulf War One, you remember when the triangle, the black triangle, F-117 came along. Nobody had seen it before. Do you think the same thing might happen with what some of us know as the Aurora Project, the TR-3B, 
a new conflict in the future and they might release that technology? Definitely. I think that is what we're going to see with Space Force. Uh, because uh, what's going to happen, I believe, is that these um, uh, advanced technologies like the Aurora Project, the TR-3B, uh, the SR-74, and other advanced uh, technologies like these uh, flying uh, rectangles, that these are going to be revealed to exist. And the reason that they're disclosing it is because Space Force is going to make the pitch that, yes, we've had a breakthrough in the development of these technologies, but we need 100 or we need 150 to defend the Earth from um, any kind of external attack or from or protect our satellite grid from a major threat in space because, according to our studies, that we'll, we'll need 150 or 300 of these things. And there's, and there's no way that they can do it with the, the present allocation of funds that they've been getting it, that they've been getting uh, from the CIA through the, through the CIA's black budget. So the only way to fund this really rapid expansion of Space Force is to get the public on board that you know, there's, there's a real present danger to the Earth's satellite grid. China is the big threat and that for Space Force to defend the satellite grid, uh, it's going to need 100, 200, 300, whatever it is of these advanced technologies. And that's going to take a really massive increase in the Space Force uh, budget. Many of us have seen what looks to be the TR-3B using infrared binoculars. The question is, are they the TR-3B or is it something else? And if it's the TR-3B, we suspect it has anti-gravitic technology. If they roll that out, the next question is, why do we still fly tin can planes all over the world when we have anti-gravitic technology? Well, that's going to be really interesting to, to see how they do that. Um, I, I know from Edgar Fouché um, that uh, he has a lot of knowledge about the TR-3B and the, the, the propulsion system that it uses. Uh, he, he describes how it uh, uses this highly pressurized mercury plasma that circula circulates in, in a, a particular chamber, uh, which is circular, and it, is, it has to go at least 60,000 revolutions per minute before you start to see a significant uh, change in the weight of the craft. It, it, it has this kind of anti-gravity effect. Uh, and, and so that, that changes the, the weight of the craft, reducing, I think he said it was about 87%, uh, that everything in that craft, the weight reduces by that percentage. So that means that the normal laws of inertia are only applied to like the equivalent of 13% of the mass of the pilots and of the craft itself. So it's capable of doing these very rapid, uh, maneuvers. Um, in the atmosphere or in space. And, but I think that those technologies, torsion field technologies are very complex, very expensive. And I, I think what would initially happen would be that uh, as Space Force begins to unroll these hidden technologies and say, hey, we, we, 
you know, these are the TR3Bs that we've been able to successfully build. We need to have a hundred or so of these. Uh, that that technology is slowly going to move over into the commercial sector and uh, companies like Boeing and Airbus will start to build um, anti-gravity craft for the civilian commercial industry. But it'll take some time before that filters down to the grassroots where where people can build, you know, their, their own kind of like anti-gravity uh, vehicles. I remember a conversation I had with Michael Schratt. You probably know who he is. But uh, years ago, we were discussing the B-2 bomber. And it's literally worth its weight in gold. $2.1 billion for that craft. But also, Dr. Paul LaViolette told me years ago, and you can listen to that interview, folks. We were, we were disconnected 20-some times every time he would use a certain keyword. But anyway, he told me that he had been in contact with major airlines in the United States, giving them the plans on how to electrify the plane's wings. And they would save, I believe, don't quote me on this, but they would save about 70% in fuel. And if you know the airline industry, the biggest expense they have is fuel. And one after time after time, he would get letters saying, thank you, but we're not interested. What's your take on that? Well, I think this was something that uh, uh, major commercial airline companies uh, like Boeing uh, were prevented uh, from moving forward in that direction. And I believe it was uh, it was in uh, Dr. LaViolette's uh, book uh, that uh, he actually talked about an incident where he said that uh, the Boeing Corporation asked for this anti-gravity technology to be declassified because it wanted to start building a commercial anti-gravity craft. Right. And it was denied permission to do that. And I, I think that's been the stumbling block because uh, companies like Boeing, uh, General Dynamics, Lockheed, they've been building anti-gravity vehicles for decades. Uh, but these are for select customers. You know, we're talking about like uh, the CIA, NRO, or the Air Force, or the Navy, or even overseas customers, you know, whether we're talking about the Australian uh, participation in the secret space programs, uh, that they, they build a, they've been building a limited number of these. But for this now to become publicly available, um, they, they, they would have to have this technology declassified and then they could start building commercial anti-gravity craft that would uh, revolutionize the transportation industry. But as you said, if the TR-3B reduces the gravity by 80%, 87%, they could do the same thing with the planes. And just like what Dr. Laviolette said, electrify the wings, then there's almost no drag when you're out there. Um, you still have to land, you still have to take off. But he also said that if you try to obtain a patent of two things— anti-gravity or perpetual motion or zero-point energy machine, you will be denied based on national security. Well, that's right. Yes, we know that there are over 5,800 patents that are currently denied or held up under national security orders at the U.S. Patents and Trademarks Office, and they explicitly refer to perpetual machines or to free energy uh, principles as areas that will automatically lead to a national security order 
being invoked. So I think this would be one of the things that would change once Space Force uh, unveils uh, their fleets of anti-gravity craft, that uh, now it's a matter of the public record that the Byfield-Brown effect is not an unconfirmed phenomenon. It's very real. That as, you, as you said, that uh, the B-2 bomber uses the Byfield-Brown principles in terms of like um, creating a an electric charge on the leading edge and that this creates a propulsive thrust forward. Right. And now all of a sudden uh, students in all the engineering schools all over the world are going to be disco- discussing the Byfield-Brown law as opposed to the Byfield-Brown effect um, because the Byfield-Brown effect is, is a kind of dismissive way of saying, well, this is something that is peculiar, it's been noticed, but it's not something that is in accord with scientific uh, laws. Well, in, once once the once the space force declares that it actually does work, then then it's going to be the Byfield Brown law, and you're going to have a similar breakthroughs in the way in which we in the way in which scientists understand uh, torsion field physics, uh, anti gravity, and and many other phenomena that people have been talking about for for decades now. Let me define this for the audience because they're probably doing what I was doing, Googling that Byfield, B-I-E-F-E-L-D, Brown effect, is an electrical phenomenon that produces an ionic wind that transfers its momentum to surrounding neutral particles. Brown also believed the Byfield-Brown effect could produce an anti-gravity force referred to as electrogravitics, which is what Dr. Paul Avila talks about, based on it being an electricity slash gravity phenomenon. So you think this is being used right now as we speak? Uh, definitely, yes. Uh, that That is, uh, if you look at the books by um, Paul LaViolette and, and Dr. Tom Vallone yeah. uh, and, and others, they say that the B-2 bomber was an example of the Byfield-Brown effect being used where, where you have this... Uh, high voltage electrostatic charge um, at one end of a capacitor and it will experience a propulsive force for a propulsive force force forward and and that's different to ionic wind which is how debunkers uh, try to dismiss the Byfield Brown effect I don't know if you read uh, the Byfield Brown effect from Wikipedia it sounds like that's the Wikipedia uh, Approach to kind of like dismiss it as a as an as ionic thing, yes. but but those who have been working on the bio, uh, on the Byfield Brown effect have been able to test it in a vacuum uh, where there's no um, kind of ionic wind and and still it works. But but nevertheless, uh, this is I think one of the areas in which uh, science is going to be revolutionised because it's it's not just a matter of the uh, Byfield Brown effect or of a torsion field physics. You know, we're, we're talking about the unified field theory. We're talking about time travel. That uh, that gravity, electro ele- electric forces, and magnetic forces are all intertwined, and that uh, you can actually manipulate time as you manipulate gravity and magnetics. That there's a relationship between the two. Um, you know, because we know from Einstein's general theory of relativity that uh, large gravitational bodies 
can dilate time or speed up time, you know, speed up or slow time depending on the, the size of a gravitational body. Uh, but the unified field theory says that time can be slowed or, or increased, uh, by the strength of the electromagnetic field. And so once that knowledge starts to uh, be revealed into the public, science is going to be revolutionized and, and time travel is going to move from being a, a kind of like a speculation into, into a very real field. If time travel exists in the future, isn't that telling us that it exists today? Well, this is one of the things like uh, to, to what extent uh, do the kind of UFO phenomena that people are witnessing, to what extent are those uh, time travelers as opposed to extraterrestrial visitors or craft belonging to secret space programs? I mean, we make assumptions that, well, you know, they're extraterrestrials or they're, these are part of the secret space program, but equally these could be vehicles from time travelers. And, and so, but, but the thing is, when you look at the unified field theory, um, because gravity and electromagnetism, uh, are all combined, you can change the, the flow of time, accelerate or decelerate it, uh, by manipulating these things. And that takes us to the idea of a tachyon, uh, something that travels faster than light. By manipulating electromagnetic charges and torsion fields, can you create tachyons? Can you create a tachyon drive? Uh, one of the intriguing things about uh, the, the the secret German space program uh, that were released in uh, some of the blueprints that Vladimir Tuzinski released back in uh, 1991 was he talked about Uh, the, the tachyonator drive that the Germans had developed a, a tachyon drive, which would enable the craft to move, uh, backward in time. And, and so this, this would be presumably how the Germans were able to develop a space program so rapidly because once they started, once they understood how a tachyonator drive operated, they could go backward in time. Which would, which meant that they could spend years and years, decades even, in space, doing all sorts of experiments, uh, visiting all sorts of planets, and then coming back in time uh, to shortly after they left, or even before they left. Um, so yes, this is this is part of the kind of enormous scientific revolution uh, that that we're going to experience as these advanced technologies are released. Going back to the, space, the U.S. Space Force, I know you said that this came all the way from the Clinton administration. What took so long for it to be released, quote-unquote, to the public? I, I believe that the, the reason was that uh, back in uh, 2000, uh, White Hats within the, the Pentagon, and I would include Donald Rumsfeld amongst that, that group of White Hats. Do you think that, Donald Rumsfeld was a White Hat? A white hat, like a good guy. No, no, really. You think that Rumsfeld was a good guy? Uh, I now that I have come across this information, and I, I listened to the speech he gave on 2001, on September 10, 2001. Okay. I listened to the full speech. I mean, people, uh, most people listen to the bit where he talks about the 
the missing $2.3 trillion. But if you listen to the full speech, he said that the greatest enemy that the United States faces right now is the Pentagon bureaucracy. Hmm. And he, he cited the missing $2.3 trillion as an example of that. So I think Rumsfeld was working with white hats in, in trying to uh, redirect how these monies were being used. And he wanted to redirect that money into being used into programs like the creation of a space corps that could actually be of benefit to the United States. But instead, uh, the next day, Rumsfeld and the White Hats uh, were uh, basically, I, I guess, shocked, shell-shocked uh, by the 9-11 attacks because when you look at it, it was really, um, I, I think, uh, Dick Cheney that ran the, the whole 9-11 attacks. Yeah. Uh, but, but nevertheless, I, I think that when we look at the creation of or the proposal of a space corps back in 2001, I believe it was White Hats wanting to fast-track the development of a space corps, of a, of a military space service that could defend the United States from attack from China or any adversary in space. But the deep state didn't want that, and so 9-11 uh, prevented space corps from being formed. It also prevented disclosure from happening, as we know, the May 2001 Disclosure Project press conference. And all of that was delayed uh, for 17 years or so. And I, I think it was because the deep state had a plan, uh, which was to deplete uh, the U.S. military uh, by getting it to fight all of these wars throughout the Middle East, while at the same time, China was uh, quietly uh, accumulating the knowledge and developing its technological base so that it could start reverse engineering uh, its own secret space program so that eventually it could learn, it could launch a space Pearl Harbor. And I think the, the plan was that this would go on probably into the early 2020s and, and then eventually at some point uh, China would, would have all the ships it needed to launch a space Pearl Harbor, and the United States would have been so depleted by these wars throughout the Middle East uh, and the global war on terror that all of a sudden it's like, you know, the announcement goes up that the U.S. satellite grid has has been mysteriously, uh, has gone offline mysteriously, but, but thanks to President Xi of China, uh, China has rescued us with their Baidu satellite system. And so now we are totally dependent on China's satellite system. And they would have presented something like that as a fait accompli. Not only do I think Dick Cheney directed the 9-11 operation, I think he was the de facto president for eight years. But let me just, going back to China in a not so exopolitical way for a moment, I remember when the term outsourcing started in the 1970s. But then in the 1980s, it was ramped up in the 90s. And it's almost like Vogue, oh, outsourcing and, and downsizing. All these companies saving money by sending their, their staff to China and to Southeast Asia and so on. But now that things are turning and that we're bringing the manufacturing back and all the pharmaceutical companies going to Puerto Rico where they should have stayed, do you think this is going to be detrimental for the rise of the dragon, if you will? 
Well, yes, I think uh, stopping that outsourcing, uh, having uh, major U.S. corporations relocate to the United States to bring manufacturing back, that that's indispensable because uh, any major corporation, whether from the United States or from Europe, uh, they know full well that uh, whatever technologies uh, that they are able or whatever products they're able to build in China for export back into the United States in, or into Europe for, for profits, that's only a short-term uh, venture because eventually uh, the, the, the Chinese have shown that uh, they will steal all those secrets, build an, an indigenous company that replicates what that European or American company was doing in China, and, and then eventually through some kind of like a legal maneuver, uh, deprive that corporation of its, of its assets. And so corporations have gotten wise to this. Uh, there's, there's a, there's a book by, uh, there's a few books actually that, that are worth, uh, kind of like, uh, discussing here in that regard. One is by, uh, Michael Pillsbury. It's called the, the 100G Marathon, where it, where it describes this, this, this process. And another book is by Brigadier General Robert uh, Spaulding, and it's called Stealth War. And it also describes this process. And companies in the US and in Europe understand that the Chinese can't be trusted, that whatever promises they make, that their intellectual property rights are going to be respected in China, uh, uh, are worth are worthless, that that's not going to happen. When push comes to shove, a Chinese uh, court will always side with an indigenous Chinese company. And and so I think that a lot of corporations understand that there's big risks in investing billions of dollars in China. Um, And so now that the Trump administration is actually penalizing uh, countries for investing in China, and is uh, cutting taxes, corporate taxes, so that uh, companies can uh, build manufacturing centers in the United States. I think you, we're going to have a lot of these companies move back, and that's going to that's going to slow uh, the uh, the not only the growth in the Chinese economy, but also slow down China's capacity to kind of uh, acquire the the latest technologies, because there, there is a a space race happening right now, and the China and the United States and 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 the Europeans to a lesser extent are involved in a space race in terms of who can build the, the better technologies for establishing a human presence in space and establishing economic activities in space and for colonizing space, and 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 while uh, the U.S. and and Europeans. Have have a, a kind of technological edge at the moment, and they have incredible creative abilities in developing new technologies. The Chinese have the edge in terms of uh, being able to quickly reverse engineer these with an enormous, highly trained workforce. So there is a race, and 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 I think the more the Trump administration stops all the outsourcing to China and brings all the uh, production uh, facilities back into the United States, uh, the more that's going to slow China's plans down to uh, to develop militarily in space so that it could go forward one day with this kind of space pull harbor scenario. 
Well, this is something that I've always wondered. The United States, with the amount of classified projects that we have, and again, what I'm about to say, people, I love Chinese people. I just don't like the CCP, the government, which is a dictatorial government that's creating its own genocide with the Uyghurs and the and the Muslims there and the and 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 Christians and the rest of them. But if we have certain Chinese elements working as scientists in the United States and they come here to get their own PhDs and we make them work inside of our facilities, all of a sudden they leave to China and China develops these incredible, you know, pieces of, of technology, weaponry very similar to us. Isn't this telling you that they're they're the best, as you said, in copying? They don't create things, but they are great when it comes to reverse engineering and copying technology. Why do we allow this, Michael? Well, I think that's because the deep state has been setting this up all along. I mean, one of the things, one of the most important books I ever read as I became involved in this um, whole exopolitics phenomenon uh, was uh, uh, William Bramley's book, Gods of Eden. Oh, he, gosh, yes. He, he tracked conflicts back thousands of years, and, and he kind of explained how the deep state, how this kind of like cabal, Illuminati, extraterrestrial influence creates these uh, polarities where they, where they have two sides reaching a similar level of technological development and sophistication so that they can then at some point contrive a, a war between the two. And, and, that's, and that's how uh, the, the deep state or the, the ruling global elite are able to manufacture international conflicts. And I think that's a good smokescreen for them to kind of like abduct you know, thousands or millions of people and take them off planet for slave trade or genetic uh, manipulation or whatever it is that they're doing, that this has been going on for a long time. And so now uh, what's happened is that uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, the deep state has been building China up. And the thing is, and this is what I argue in, in my in The Rise of the Red Dragon, that the deep state knew this back in, the, back in 1950, that in 1950 they arranged for a, a Chinese a brilliant Chinese scientist who had access to all of America's most advanced technologies, who had been part of uh, uh, the, the, the Operation Lusty to uh, interrogate German scientists in Germany in terms of what advanced projects that they were working on, that uh, this scientist was part of uh, the study of the retrieved Roswell craft, that his name was Dr. Shen Shu Shen, who is widely recognized in China today as the father of China's uh, rocket program. And he helped them to develop ballistic nuclear whip, uh, missiles. Well, in 1950, uh, Dr. Shen was a household name in the United States. Uh, they were writing stories about him uh, and his ideas of uh, supersonic rocket, so civilian rockets that could take people from Los Angeles to New York in, in 30 minutes. That was in 1950. They were talking about that. And he's, he was a household name. Then he was detained by the FBI and the Immigration and Naturalization Service on these phony charges of being a communist spy, which were ridiculous. But it was nevertheless contrived. And in the book, I explain 
how the Majestic 12 group contrived this because the, the, these controllers, uh, and Majestic 12 is part of that, you know, they don't think in terms of two or four or ten year, five-year or ten-year cycles like, like uh, the military or like uh, congressional planners. Uh, they think in terms of 50 years or 100 years. So back in 1950, uh, the controllers understood that in the future, China would have to be very rapidly built up as an alternative to the United States and that the deep state would help uh, that massive industrialization process of China uh, so that one day China and the United States could go to war in what would be truly a third world war. And, 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 that, and that, I think, is what the deep state has been setting up. And, and we do face dangerous times ahead over the next 10 years or so. And I think that the only way a major war between the United States and China can be averted is if uh, the United States develops a really powerful space fleet. You know, and space force, I think, is the core to that, which is why the deep state sabotaged the the creation of a space corps back in 2001 and why today there's a lot of people that try and kind of, I mean, they're, they're even, the Democratic Party has actually been proposing that Space Force should be abolished because they're saying, well, that's Trump's idea. We don't want his idea. Space Force should be abolished. The Pentagon should be defunded. Well, that's what the deep state, that's what China would love because then China could launch a space pool harbor and 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 uh, we would then move into a Chinese century, and it would be terrible. Just a quick parenthesis on the William Bramley's uh, book, Guts of Eden. What an incredible book. There are parts about the, the plague and why they were concocted through history, which reminds me of, uh, of today. And that book is so comprehensive that I've had it in my backpack for years. I still have it in my backpack. And I always try to read just a few pages uh, at a time in order to absorb it all. And years ago, I made contact with Mr. William Bramley to do an interview, and his answer was, I would love to do it, but I really don't remember what I wrote. I guess he's elderly now, and that book, as you know, is it's a heavy book. But uh, Jay Widener told me a few days ago that in 2014, there was a meeting between the CCP, the Chinese uh, government, and the deep state. And what ensued was the deep state wanted to bring him to their fold, and basically, they said, you need to open your borders and this and that. And and China, at the end of the day, said, no, we don't want to. Get out. Don't ever come back here. And the deep state realized, if we don't take over China or make it not grow the way they are, they're going to take over the deep state. And this is why we see Trump being helped to basically transform China into what they were in the 1970s and not letting them take over the world. What's your opinion on this? Well, the key question is how does the deep state infiltrate uh, countries? And what we need to recognize is that, and this goes back to William Bramley's book and, of course, others like Jim uh, Mars and his The Alien Agenda, they talk about the same thing. We're, we're talking about entities that, have a lot of extraterrestrial DNA in them and, and they have the ability to manipulate dimensions and they also have advanced technologies. And, and I think that these groups are experts in infiltrating 
any organization. And the, and the Communist Party of China is really ripe for infiltration because imagine if you have a, uh, advanced cloning technology. Right. You could clone any leader, any military leader or intelligence chief in China and, and through that person begin to infiltrate China because that person would then maybe organize a top secret meeting with President Xi. You got to come to my headquarters and President Xi comes and, and there's a clone of Xi there. And then all of a sudden China's been infiltrated and taken over by the deep state because the deep state have, has these advanced cloning technologies and, um, and they're working very closely with extraterrestrials who use all kinds of, um, temporal technologies to see into the future. And, and so the Communist Party uh, is something very easy to infiltrate and take over because it's so hierarchical and monolithic that if you take over the, the Politburo, you take over a majority of members in the Politburo, you control a country that has the potential to control the planet. But in the United States, it's the opposite. Power is diffused over all of the different institutions of government is diffused over uh you know between the different states and the federal government that you, you would have to infiltrate by cloning and replacing hundreds of leaders not just three or five so that's why a country like the united states is has been really hard to take over whereas a country like china can be very easily taken over and and i think uh uh, there's there's a great sci-fi show called Babylon 5 that, that shows this, that actually explains how the extraterrestrials could infiltrate and take over an entire country or an entire planet just by that simple process of just uh, influencing, taking over, or cloning a few key leaders, you've taken over a, a whole country. And the more monolithic and hierarchical it is, the easier it is to take it over. You have no idea how many people have told me through the years, Mel, you have to watch Babylon 5. But at the time, I was watching Galactica. But now that you said it, you just gave me that push. So if the aliens have cloning technology, and I have no doubt that they do, if we do, because I know and I've had enough information to show that there are certain countries that have cloning technology, then they could actually have a cloned fifth column in any country, any government. Well, that's the big uh, thing that we need to keep in mind. Uh, Peter Beda was the first one uh, to talk about uh, the, the cloning that was going on. And he talked about it in the 1970s, and, and it actually matched uh, with the uh, some of the insiders that, that had come forward, um, like uh, Dr. Michael Wolf, for example. He, he said he was involved in the initial cloning uh, experiments that occurred in the 1970s. So Peter Beter's material does match. And he, he was saying that, yes, U.S. leaders were being cloned. And, and that was, uh, and that's how you had these kind of different factions, uh, that were fighting. Um, obviously, uh, positive extraterrestrials are helping, uh, white hats or, or those that kind of like stand for the constitutional values and the bedrock of the United States. They're, help, they're helping them identify the infiltrators. Uh, but, um, you know, this is happening worldwide and that, that cloning is very real. Now, I mean, this is something I don't talk too much about uh, simply because it, it frightens people. 
I mean, imagine if uh, if they're able to clone a world leader or several world leaders or, you know, clone uh, the Pope or clone the Secretary of Defense or clone the Secretary of the CIA or even even the president himself. Um, you know, that, that would just really create chaos. But, but it does exist. That technology does exist. But I know that there are safeguards and that, that requires working with positive extraterrestrial groups who are going to be uh, honest with us. And that's where, you know, this whole thing of honesty and ethics comes in. Because I know you, you uh, Mel, as am I, and many listening to this show, we're truth tellers or we're truth seekers. Right. Truth is important to us, but we're living in, we live in an empire of lies. And as long as major institutions support those that lie and manipulate and fabricate, uh, then this whole country and the whole planet is not going to be safe. But once you support the truth tellers and start, start allowing the truth coming out, then it's going to be harder and harder for this kind of infiltration and manipulation to take up, to take place. Have you heard this conspiracy about Putin being a clone? And, and somebody sent me some information a few days ago, and it really made me pause and wonder. We have pictures. You know, in, in, in Russia, if you face trial, you are in a cage, essentially. I have the pictures of this Putin behind the cage, and apparently he was a mobster. He basically killed anybody who would just try to go against him. And apparently the White Hats came along and executed this one, but replaced him with a clone, a benevolent clone. And when this clone went to his home, the wife said, wait a second, I don't know you. You're not the, my husband. And that's why the wife divorced him and she moved away. Nobody knows where she, where she is. And supposedly he's the one that fixed Russia give it morals they're back to you know the, the shining where they used to be do you, do you lend any credence to this that putin could be a clone by the white hats well i think putin himself is a uh, part of this kind of like white hat alliance if you like this coalition of world leaders that are trying to um do good things or try and prevent uh the deep state manufacturing a global conflict. I think uh, Putin uh, did, I think he was very careful in, in how, uh, the, in responding to the US provoca provocations in places like Syria and in other parts of the Middle East. Uh, Putin was very careful in, in how he dealt with that. Uh, and of course, you had the Ukraine, you know, the, the whole kind of like Ukrainian. Uh, takeover, if you like, and the Crimean secession, right. and you know that that Putin is, has has uh, behaved in a way that helps prevent or deconflict uh, the, the the global situation and and the conflict with with the between Russia and the United States, and 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 I know President Obama was also very good at that. That was one of the things I did like about President Obama that. Uh, You know, there were people that were really pushing him to, you know, go to war against Russia. You know, look what they're doing in the U Ukraine and look what they're doing to threaten Poland and Latvia. And it was like people were really pushing uh, Obama to go to conflict against uh, uh, Putin and Russia. But he resisted that. And I was very thankful that he did that. And so I, I think, yes, Putin is, I believe, part of this white hat 
alliance. As for him being a clone, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, that to me, I mean, it's it's kind of like far-fetched, but I know it's possible. Um, I haven't heard uh, that the White Hats use cloning technology to replace uh, bad leaders with good leaders. I, I, I know it can happen the other way. I didn't know it happened that way. But, you know, it's possible I keep an open mind. I'll, I'll send it. I'd send you the information and you tell me what you think, because if you had told me that a few years ago, I would have said this is just bunk. But especially in Crimea, it was part of Russia and it was Nikita Khrushchev who gave it to Ukraine. And uh, right now, I mean, when this happened a few years ago, it won by a landslide plebiscite. It's not like Russia came and took it over. The population wanted to go back to, to, to Russia. But anyway, Michael, this has been a fascinating interview uh, give us some closing remarks, and we didn't talk too much about Project Artemis. Define it once again. What is the purpose, and also what is in the future in the exopolitical world? Right. Well, Project Artemis uh, is this idea of uh, returning humans to the moon and then moving to Mars. And so this has been a, a key plank of the Trump administration of, of having uh, first the female land on the moon and, and then place, and then the first man on, on Mars. So we are being told using kind of conventional rocket technologies. Uh, but one of the key things that has happened is that, uh, the Artemis Accords were recently signed, uh, by the United States with seven major aerospace nations or, well, some of them are not so big. Uh, but nevertheless, that is the formation of a multinational space alliance, which is going to collaborate in the Artemis project in, in not only developing the moon so that commercial activities could occur there, so you can have uh, permanent bases on the moon, scientific exploration, but also you can have actually have joint ventures into joint ventures to Mars and to make sure that the uh, the, the cis lunar environment uh, is something that is uh, made available for all major nations to ex uh, to exploit economically or, or put satellites in in the orbit of the of the Earth or in the orbit of the Moon and for kind of like space development to occur. So so all of that is is happening right now. I, I think what we are seeing is the seeds of a future Starfleet, uh, a, a kind of like Star Trek-like future where the the major nations of the world all coalesce around the United States and the Space Force to work together in projecting their power, their influence into space. And it's very interesting that Jim Bridenstone, who is the current NASA administrator, in referring to the Artemis Accords, he, he talked about us being the Artemis generation. Well, who is Artemis? Well, Artemis was the Greek goddess, uh, the goddess for uh, hunting. Uh, she was the goddess protecting young girls and the, the goddess uh, ensuring righteous behavior in the forest and and who was orion well orion was 
this kind of brutal hunter that was the rapist. And so Artemis slayed Orion and out of his carcass that formed the the Orion constellation. So goes uh, Greek myth. But I think there's a lot of symbolism here in terms of the Artemis Accords being a vehicle for this kind of righteous behavior to come back into what's happening in space and that the deep state um, is uh, symbolically represented by Orion and that because Artemis slew Orion and out of his carcass established uh, the Orion constellation, I, I think that's all kind of symbolism for this idea that the nations that are collaborating with the United States are going to eventually succeed in defeating the deep state's plans and all of the resources that the deep state has acquired through decades of secret projects, uh, of CIA uh, black budgets, uh, bases on the moon, on Mars and in space, that all of those are going to come under the purview of the Space Force and, and that's how we will establish what is being called this kind of Artemis generation, which I think is, is almost like an invocation to the goddess Artemis. So, uh, you know, I mean, people do talk that the ancient gods were more than just myth, that there's, there's a, a kind of like a, a reality behind there. So I find it very interesting that the NASA administrator, no less, is actually referring to us as the Artemis generation, this deep symbolism there. Artemis in Greek religion, the goddess of wild animals, the hunt and vegetation and of chastity and childbirth. She could not bear children. She was, she was identified by the Romans with Diana. Artemis was the daughter of Zeus and Leto and the twin sister of Apollo. Michael, how can people learn more about your work and your books? Uh, people can just uh, visit my website, exopolitics.org. I've now started doing monthly webinars, and so my next webinar is, is going to be uh, Kennedy's Last Stand, where I talk about uh, the, the deep state, UFOs, and the Fourth Reich, and how they're all linked to the Kennedy assassination. So that'll be on November 22nd, uh, which is going to be the 57th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination. So, that, so people can go to my website, exopolitics.org, get the information for my webinar series. I now have a uh, podcast that people can subscribe to where they get the audios of my articles and of course the website itself I have uh, close to a thousand articles uh, that I've written since uh, 2003 that people can read for free Dr. Michael Sala thank you very much once again for joining me on Veritas once again all the best with your work thank you Mel aloha aloha mahalo all the best bye bye and that was Dr. Michael Sala with an actual political review. Well, I'd be curious to know from you, are you happy we are back discussing some of the old topics? Let me know. It's a good change of scenery. Wouldn't you agree? And tonight, I'll leave you with this. If you could erase all the mistakes of your past, it would also erase all of the wisdom of your present. Remember the lesson, not the disappointment. Thanks for listening. I'm El Hostelrick. Until next week, be well.